Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Being in relationships can be just as addicting as any other substance because of the biochemical cocktail that it serves. Welcome to True Crime Connections. I am Tiffany, your host, and today we are mending broken hearts. I am here with Ben Ufana, and he's here to share his expertise in this matter. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Tiffany. Thank you for bringing me on. Of course. So you've had a very interesting journey, to say Mm -hmm. the least. You actually got inspiration from some of the top leaders that you could possibly get it from. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? Well, initially, and so this is such a different path from what most people have ever experienced. And sometimes I, as the years go by and I'm getting older, I'm thinking, oh, I'm this old. And, and yet, On the other hand, I think like, well, if I wasn't born at the time I was, I would not have had the opportunity to learn from some of these individuals. At the age of 17, I took off on my own and I landed in a community of predominantly Kiowa Indians in southwestern Oklahoma. And I started going into the ceremonies with uh, native elders among the tribe. And it was within these uh, peyote meetings that met The man who became my mentor, his name was Horace. He was one of the last surviving traditional doctors or medicine men among the Kiowa tribe. And and that has played a huge part in, you know, apprenticing from him. He transmitted portions of his own healing gifts and the training. The vision quest involves going alone into the mountains to fast for four days and nights with no food and water, So, which I've gone dozens of times. But. But all that has played such a huge part in my own healing journey, carrying the traumas of my own childhood and adolescence. And the fact that I've worked with thousands of people and have this ability to look into people's bodies and minds, I see and feel what they're carrying. And so many of these traumas, deep emotional wounding, I find that a lot of people, it never fully heals. They carry a lot of this trauma or wounding to their grave even. And and for me, it was especially devastating because it was playing out in my attempts to form romantic or intimate relationships. And so many of us, we just want the relationship to work. Of course, I did too. And many people, when they get hurt, they experience that devastation. They they create a lot of barriers to intimacy. They wall themselves off. They close their heart. They swear they're not going to allow themselves to be vulnerable. But I wasn't able to escape the pain. <laughs> and I felt like I had no choice. It was just so all-consuming. And I felt there was no other way except to just go through the middle of it. 
I mean, really, you have to. You have to face it head on because if not, mm -hmm. you are going to bring it into every relationship every. that you have. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the people who want to bury it and say, oh, you know, it's, I'm good. I'm fine. You're not. You're not fine. Right. Yeah. And I think we, we messaged a little bit ahead of time. You know, we were talking about the, how we confuse the chemistry for connection. And that's where a lot of us get into just enormous amounts of trouble in our relationships. Should we dive into that? Yes, I am so intrigued. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of factors that play in when it comes to the, what we think of is chemistry. And when we experience this, what we think of as chemistry, it can be incredibly deceptive. It's like being in a hall of mirrors or something, those what, amusement park attractions where you have all these distorted mirrors. But it can be extraordinarily difficult for us to objectively make sense of what it is we're dealing with. We're, we're perceiving this individual with whom we form an attachment through this powerful biochemical cocktail produced by our own brain. And then there's the emotional wounding that factors into it as well. I mean, initially there's, wow, where do I start with all this? There's dopamine. You know, it's part of our brain's reward circuitry. And I think there is a purpose to all this on one hand, because I think it's part of our evolutionary biology. And if we didn't have this biochemical incentive, maybe we would just like, yeah, whatever. And maybe we would never really partner up or maybe or sort of, but it wouldn't have been as much of a driving force to propagate the human species. And so might have been a whole lot better for the planet because we human beings have been the most destructive force on the entire planet, especially in the past hundred years. But so dopamine, for instance, you know, there's that passion, the desire. Uh, dopamine, again, is part of the brain's reward circuitry. And that's the, the neurotransmitter that creates that profound sense of like, I got to be with this person. And and then you have oxytocin, that the cuddle hormone. And oxytocin is released under, I'm not sure the right way to say it, different circumstances. When, when a woman gives birth and you, know, you have this kind of shriveled, wrinkled, red, and covered in fluid, little bundle <laughs> come out and... And it's like not necessarily all that attractive, but there's this uh, release of the oxytocin and that facilitates the, the bonding between the mother and the infant. And when the mother is nursing as well, there's the release of oxytocin. And were it not for oxytocin, then very likely a lot of mothers would not form such a powerful attachment to their offspring, to their their newborn, their child. And so these neurotransmitters, they play some very important functions here. And if we didn't have them, 
again, we may not have survived as human species, but, but when we're physically intimate with another partner, even just holding hands or just being in sitting in close proximity to a friend, there's that, that feeling of comfort and attachment. But when we're cuddling, when we're physically intimate with someone, the oxytocin, again, it's referred to as the cuddle hormone. And so that produces that sense of comfort and the, the feeling of bonding and attachment. And things are getting really confused these days because we have Tinder and these other hookup apps. And so people jump over a lot of the stages, the normal stages you refer to as courtship. And so they go from seeing someone, it's like, wow, she's hot or uh, he's whatever, and, uh, and swipe right and you match and you get together and then you're banging each other. And, <laughs> and, and then you're like, things are a bit out of order. So your brain is producing the oxytocin and yeah, you get some dopamine release, of course, too, if you find that person very attractive. And, but you're skipping over all these stages by which we organically form attachments. So it just adds to the confusion. And especially when you're hooking up with multiple people, more confusion. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're constantly going for that next hit, you're never really going to find what you're looking for. And and the sad thing, too, is the way that our technology, our devices, our smartphones and tablets, and and then we have social media and dating apps, and they're basically designed like slot machines. So there's this intermittent variable reward. And so what it does is it creates this addictive cycle so that it's it's wiring, rewiring, reconfiguring our brain so that we skitter along the surface of reality and we, we jump to the next reward, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And so it's it's discouraging the the deeper reflective introspective processes. And that makes it difficult for us to establish the longer term bonds and attachments. It's, wow, there's all these infinite selection of potential partners that I could go and hook up with, especially if you're still young and cute. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's, I, I'd say these apps and devices and everything, they're highly engineered. They're designed in order to enrich a small select number of people <laughs> at our expense. But it, it's harming our ability. Like We're not really going through the processes we need to to get to know people. And we're not even developing like a lot of the essential basic communication skills that say if we do you know, sort of stumble into a relationship, it's a lot of times we don't know how to communicate and we're so distracted. And because we're skitter along the surface of reality, we don't understand our own emotions. Uh, we have more of that disconnect. If we're not processing those emotions, if we're overstimulated by the massive amount of digital media flooding through our sensory channels and we can't process our own emotions. And we need to be able to do that deep level processing of 
our life lived experiences, but also our interactions when we're attaching to someone as we're getting to know someone. And that's an important part of the process through which we form these bonds or attachments. Oh, there's there's more as far as the neurotransmitters. There's also the what, uh, serotonin, which is an important part of feeling that, that comfort and satisfaction with a potential partner. There's norepinephrine, which that makes us a bit obsessive. It, if you think of the song by the police, like everything she does is magic. Yeah, so it's like we, we have that, that glow and remember every little detail about that person. Of course, then there's testosterone that makes us horny as hell. Uh, it's, it's much stronger in males, but females produce some too. And there's also both uh, men and women produce estrogen, which estrogen in some ways, I'm not sure the right word. It, Balances? It, it, it complements in a way, or it sort of works in conjunction with the oxytocin. And so all these, there's this whole balance of the neurotransmitters. And so anytime we, we meet someone and we're feeling that powerful attraction, then it's triggering this, eliciting this very powerful biochemical process or processes within our brain. There's that. And, and I think that's, that's part of it. There's a lot more, but those are the primary drivers, let's say. And then in addition, there's the emotional wounding. Any, any questions about the, the biochemical aspect first before we go forward? Because I don't want to just run way down the road and before you have a chance to jump in yourself and if you have questions thus far. I mean, it all makes so much sense. Like, I love to cuddle. I'm a cuddler. But it does. It, like, literally gives you a sense of just happiness. And it's just, the body does give off so many different components. Even, well, cortisol, that's a bad one (laughs) Mm -hmm. that your body can promote or produce. So I just, I think it's fascinating how the body works and how it all works together and it messes with our minds a little bit. (laughs) True. Yeah, definitely. The other factor too that plays in is the the fact that many of us have experienced whatever traumas growing up in our childhood and adolescence or whatever dysfunctional dynamics that were playing out in our family of origin, parent-child dynamic, the relational dynamic we had with our parents. And maybe some of us grew up with parents that were, for the most part, very loving and supportive. Even if we do have grown up with parents who were abusive or that left us, you know, the whole relational dynamic that we had, what we were, our lived experiences with them left us very wounded. At this point, we're adults. And so it's our responsibility to take whatever steps are required to facilitate our healing. And even if those Mm -hmm. of us who did grow up with trauma, on one hand, we're starting off with certain deficits. It could be very incapacitating in some respects. We lack a lot of resources or capacities. But on the other hand, those of us who do carry a lot of this wounding or trauma, the steps that that are required for us to, to heal this wounding, as we take these steps, 
and heal the, these deeply wounded parts of ourselves, what happens is it gives us the opportunity to become truly extraordinary. Whereas you can have people who grow up in the most cushy environments or you know, where they were for the most part loved and supported, but in some ways not facing that adversity and not having these challenges to overcome, it's like they're not forced to to develop these extraordinary capabilities or capacities that is required of us if we are to ever heal. So if you have childhood trauma or you're like a product of generational trauma, how does that work when you start to go into the dating world? Because you have already wounded that part of you. Yeah, the thing is what happens is we tend to find ourselves attracted to, we form attachments to, and we attract to us individuals that are quite dysfunctional, who are themselves very wounded, who are highly likely to reenact much of this wounding. Now, those individuals who who have what's referred to as a more secure attachment style, who were very much loved, nourished, well cared for, the tendency is they're less likely to resonate. You know, there's more of that, the good foundation that they start out with, more self-acceptance, they internalize the love from their parents, and so maybe they encounter someone. It depends on the individual, okay? A lot of times what tends to happen is they see someone who's, or encounter someone who's more abusive or, you know, just, dysfunctional uh, substance abuse or other kinds of crazy-ass dysfunction and tendency to be manipulative and game-playing. And, and it's like, that doesn't feel very good. And so it's like, eh. And even if they go through a breakup, there's it's easier for them to bounce back. They have more of a resilience about them. And they will feel some hurt and disappointment, but the tendency is they're going to get, usually they'll get over it more easily and quicker. Now, there are exceptions. I have seen instances where someone who had a relatively good beginning to start with, loving, supportive parents, but when we're in our teens, maybe early 20s, and we could be incredibly naive, quite vulnerable. And I think it's something like about 15% of those out there in the dating pool Maybe it's more because a tendency is people with the more secure attachment styles, they tend to partner up with each other and they get in relationships and those relationships tend to last. And yet, on the other hand, you have those with the more anxious attachment style and then you have the others with that avoidant attachment style and they're doing this weird dance. The people with the anxious attachment style, they can be a bit more desperate and have those those deep, unfulfilled needs to be held and loved and cared for and to love. And sadly, a lot of us with these anxious attachment styles, we tend to form these attachments to individuals who have more of a tendency to be avoidant, who have a limited capacity to bond, to form attachments. And and even we can be more vulnerable to those with those more 
extreme, say, narcissistic tendencies who could be incredibly wounding. But what I was starting to say earlier is I've seen instances where someone who initially came from that loving, supportive environment, their parents are very caring and nourishing, but because they were so vulnerable early on as they were starting to form attachments and they got involved with someone who was extraordinarily wounding, it left some incredibly deep scars or emotional wounding. And so because of that, what happens is the fact that we've never learned to work constructively with our emotions, the majority of us, and it, it creates this extraordinarily deep emotional wound. And so we tend to deny what we're feeling, avoid those painful feelings, distract ourselves, push the feelings down. We're overstimulated, and so much of that pain gets internalized. And as we carry these wounds, the fact that they don't heal for so many of us, at least not on our own, it begins a destructive cycle or pattern where we start to form repeated attachments to individuals who continue to reenact this wounding. Now, a lot of us say if we grow up with this uh, either neglect or if we're subjected to verbal, emotional, physical, childhood sexual trauma, a combination of all these things, we tend to find ourselves forming attachments to individuals who reenact many of our traumas. And with this repeated traumatization, then it's, it's digging the wounds even deeper. It's adding on to those initial traumas. And so you have this compounding effect of multiple traumas that is occurring. Been there, done that, have those. <laughs> Me too. I know it very well. I did that too. And it's when we're forming these attachments, because we, we carry this wounding, like all this backlog of all these painful emotions, these events or these experiences, interactions that were so deeply wounding, so painful, then what, then what happens is, for the most part, we're not fully conscious of what we're doing. And yet, it creates this filter through which we're seeing. And except we don't quite realize we're looking through this distorted filter. And so we're looking out into the world, we're interpreting our interactions, we're, we have this overlay, this filter, where we're perceiving that individual we form attach, an attachment to. So there's the combination of our emotional wounding, the traumas we've internalized, all these highly charged emotions, memories, everything, impressions. And then there's the whole biochemical component to it, the biochemical cocktail. So when you have all of that, all operating simultaneously. And so a lot of us, we're, in a way, we're set up to go out in the world. We're wanting to connect. We have these natural needs. We want to love and to be loved. This is one of our most basic human needs. But when we're carrying the wounding, then we have that biochemical cocktail. (laughs) That's like, you know, the song, Love is the drug. <laughs> and so we have all this going on simultaneously, and it makes can make it extraordinarily difficult for us to really know what we're getting ourselves into. And so a lot of times it precipitates these disasters. We're forming attachments to individuals who, who reenact a lot of our early traumas or other deeply wounding experiences. And 
it gets more complicated too because as getting married, for instance, uh, when we own property together, when there are children involved, you know, all these things. So there are multiple layers of complication and it could be that much more difficult to get ourselves out of the mess. And, and I, you know, I want to say this in the most under, understanding way possible. A lot of us, we, we can't really see all that well what we're getting ourselves into. And there's a way in which we go into this blind. And so much of my own healing process, I'm thankful I don't have children myself. What, I'm, what I appreciate about not having my own is that I see children, adolescents, early 20-somethings, that are really struggling, a lot of confusion, carrying a lot of wounding, a lot of pain. And in many instances, I will step in to be there for them. And so it gives me the capacity to really be there for a lot of these individuals when no one else is able to, to be there for them. You know, so, and sometimes it's, it's a little maddening to me, for instance. I've spent a lot of time in India and Sri Lanka and there's such a familial societal pressure of propagating the species, having children, especially having boy babies. And, and it pains me, especially there's a lot of female infants that are abandoned, even at, at this time in history. There are some, what's the femicide, or if that's the right word, female infants that are buried alive or horrible things that are done because this stupid preference for boy babies. If, if I had a child, I'd be honest, I'd much rather have a, a girl child. <laughs> uh, I just find it easier to relate to women than men a lot of times. But Yeah, but you're going to have all these men. How are the, men can't have babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and you have a situation where there's an excess of men who cannot find partners because of this preference for male children. And so there's a, a shortage of females because of that. It's just cultural insanity, but I, I don't mean to attack any culture. Every culture, every single culture has its own kind of dysfunction. Um, is, is it okay to use a little language here, a little profanity? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So I'm going to be blunt. Every culture has its own flavor or brand of fucked up in this. And so that preference for just male babies, you know, for instance, that would be their brand of fucked up in this, you know, but it's, but it, it's not just India, it's every culture here in the United States, we have our dysfunction. I've spent time in China, just other countries around the world, just every culture, every country, every nationality, we, we all have our own unique brand of it there. But, um, where was I going with that? We're all fucked up. <laughs> yeah, we all have a responsibility. You know, and the fact that there was uh, there's a song years ago by the band The Sex Pistols. I mean, that was when I was in high school and getting into college. You know, we had the, the Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys released, what, Holiday in Cambodia. And it was that 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 leering that voice, you know, that, that sinister sound of the vocalist Jello Biafra. And I remember my earliest memories, like, you know, all these guys who are just being shipped off to Vietnam, you know, so, but 
but but the Sex Pistols had that song pretty vacant, and and so there are ways in which a a lot of us like individually, collectively, it's like we can be really checked out, and a, a, much of that comes from the fact that that we don't want to deal with the, the core issues. It's like don't go there, don't feel, don't acknowledge the issues, and suppress. Deny, self-medicate with food, alcohol, uh, other recreational drugs, shopping, whatever. And, and so it creates these profound disconnects. We disconnect from parts of our, our, our psyche, parts of our bodies, parts of our being. And so that's why it's so crucial that, you know, for me, a big part of my healing process individually and as I work with people, whether in groups and one-on-one, it's that whatever the issues are, if, if something's challenging you, if something's distressing you or causing you pain or has caused suffering in your life, face it, deal with it. With all the resources you have to the best of your ability, get in and face it and deal with it. Back on track here as far as the I know I can go a little circular in some ways, but, but we were talking about how the, the the biochemical component and the emotional wounding, how chemistry gets confused with compatibility. And that was a big problem for me because I had both the carrying the trauma of my childhood and adolescence. I carried some extraordinarily deep emotional wounds. And so I found myself forming attachments to women who were themselves deeply wounded and to some respect or to some extent reenacting a lot of early trauma and doing other crazy, stupid ass shit that was causing me more pain. And and there there's some weird kind of dynamic. Um, I actually found it much easier to, when I lived among Native American communities, when I lived among the Kiowa people, when I lived out on the Navajo reservation, there's something about like a lot of the native women that it was easier for me to form attachments. And I, I felt calmer and more secure. And they, they didn't have, they wouldn't play so much like a lot of the fucked up emotional games that have become so prevalent. It's not just women, men and women do the shit to each other here in our more mainstream American society. It's it's just part of the, there's all this chase and hard to get bullshit. And it's like, fuck you, stop wasting my time. Right, uh, the games. The games, the games. <laughs> and it's it's really destructive. And, and part of it is like some people are, are just, it's a form of attention seeking, valid, that need for validation. And again, like, fuck you, you know, for doing that. And I've gotten sucked into that uh, with a few women. Conversely, I've had other women that were very genuine and very sincere. And so it very much depends on the individual. And men could do this shit too. You know, it's these kinds of dynamics are commonplace. And, and it's much more so. I find even... And when I would form attachments or women that I've connected with from parts of like Central South America, and it was more straightforward, the, they were more sincere or honest in terms of if there was an interest. And then spending time in India and Sri Lanka, 
again, very different relational dynamic. And because of that, I felt a lot safer and more comfortable. And there was more of a, a similarity in the way I bonded and formed attachments. I wasn't there to play games. And I just, I don't see any sense of that. Again, it's like, fuck you, stop wasting my time. But in my late teens and up into my 20s, even up into my early 30s. I was extraordinarily vulnerable to a lot of the manipulation, a lot of the game playing. And because I, okay, on one hand, I had this extraordinarily deep emotional wounding, a lot of the trauma that I had suffered. And so because of that, there, there's this profound need just to, to love and to be loved. And what would happen is like, is that attempt to form relationships is I began to develop these attachments. And a lot of the women that I would form attachments to, they didn't comprehend that. There's a, a different kind of relational dynamic, say, in our mainstream American culture. I think there's more of a expectation for the man to be strong, kind of invulnerable. I also see a number of these women who will later complain that he's so grossly insensitive. He's so hurtful. It's like, yeah, of course, because he's so fucking numb and shut down emotionally. And But you don't want a guy who's like connected to his emotions and feeling because then it means you have to face your shit, too. <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of the weird relational dynamics that I would see play out here when I would attempt to, to date here in the United States uh, in the more mainstream culture. But um, anyway, so again, there's that vulnerability. And so there's this extraordinarily deep wounding. There's the trauma I was carrying. And so what would happen, I'd form the attachments, and then I would attach to some women who just like to play with me, that cat and mouse thing. And I think some were probably just doing the best they could. They themselves were wounded. There were some that were quite mean, <laughs> that just... <laughs> maybe on a search and destroy mission, wanted to inflict some pain. Maybe they themselves they there's, would attach to men who were very abusive. But when they me come along and being vulnerable, then it's like, oh, okay, then I'll take it out on him. <laughs> but what happened is, okay, so there's that, my emotional wounding, and then there's the whole biochemical process going as well. So I would be like, I've never felt this way for someone. Oh, she's the one. You know, even this kind of soulmate thing. You know, it's just bullshit. It's all projection that we tend to do on an individual. We get ourselves into so much trouble that way. And then it makes it, we're projecting all this meaning, the significance that it's our mind, our brain is concocting it. But it's like delusion. It's not real. It's like this hallucination that our mind makes it, that we project onto that individual. And we just get ourselves into enormous trouble. And we stay for the longest time in these really destructive, abusive relationships. And the other thing, too, because we don't process our emotions, that we avoid the pain, like, we don't want to feel that that person is hurting us, saying and doing all those horrible things that are wounding us, you know, <laughs> putting the knife in or whatever, because we suppress our emotions. We don't want to go there. 
we don't want to acknowledge what's happening and we're pushing those feelings down when the emotions are not getting processed then it locks us into a holding pattern when we cannot process it when we cannot process our reality for what it is what's actually happening then it freezes us so instead of when we're able conversely when we're able to process or digest that experience and what happens is we start shifting you know um, once i taught myself and i had to do this i had to make a very concerted effort there are times when i was strung out on someone uh, that the whole projection where i thought oh i have this bond or this connection with someone is like bullshit <laughs> it was just my projection and so I'd be off in my delusion. I'd be like, no, bring yourself here now. You know, what is actually happening? She's over there. She's not with me. Oh, she's she's fucking that other guy over there. She's not with me. She's she's into someone else. And mm -hmm. so I'd bring myself back to the here and now. What's happening? Acknowledge what's happening. Yeah, that person is somewhere else. He, she, depending on whether gay, straight, or whatever, whoever you're with, acknowledge what's happening. And how does it feel in your body? What are your honest, authentic, emotional responses to what is happening? And I would dive into the depth. I would allow myself to feel as fully and deeply as possible in the moment. And these feelings can be extraordinarily painful when someone you, you get together with someone, you think you have this connection, all of a sudden they ghost you, or all of a sudden now that person's off fucking somebody else, and, and you're just like, it's tearing you up. And it's like, just acknowledge it. Are they saying and doing really abusive things to you? Whatever it is, acknowledge the reality what it is. And so I would purposefully acknowledge what's happening. I'd bring myself back to the feelings, the bodily sensations, and they could be extraordinarily painful at times, but I would do the best I could, keep bringing myself back to it. Sometimes I'd go off into fantasy land again. It's like, no, get your ass back here and go back into the feelings and breathe as deep as you can into the feelings and you're breathing very softly, very deeply. And it depends, you know, because Sometimes if the attachment isn't very strong, maybe you didn't resonate with that person all that much, maybe you could, even in 20 or 15 minutes or something, you could be over somebody and like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but when you feel very intensely for somebody, and even more so, if you have a history of trauma from previous relationships that have caused you extraordinary hurt, pain, struggle, you've suffered a lot, if you have trauma going back to your childhood, your family of origin, you were subjected to emotional, verbal, physical, sexual abuse, whatever, the wounding is much deeper. And so when you have all this compounded, multiple layers of trauma, then when you get into some whatever crazy fucked up dramas playing out, you're not only experiencing the pain of what's happening in the immediate, you know, you're then and there 
drama that you're caught up in, but there's also the historical wounding. It's, it's, it's all connected there. And so it's a much more involved process. It's going to require a great deal more time and effort. And so for me, I had to keep bringing myself back. I couldn't just sit and do it once. And a few times, if the attachment wasn't, I didn't care that much about the person. Maybe I saw them once. I had some interaction and things just didn't work for whatever reason. It's like, yeah, 15, 20 minutes. It's like, uh, oh, well, <laughs> move on. But when I felt those extraordinarily deep, powerful attachments, then I had to keep coming back to it because there was was happening the immediate, the history of painful relationships and the childhood trauma. All that was all linked together. Now, there's there are different components to the healing. And initially, when I was all tangled up in this drama that was playing out, first thing I did, I was at a complete loss. So I went, I spent a few years working with the psychotherapist. And she's very compassionate, very understanding. I, I gained a lot of valuable insight, but but even she her her own understanding was very limited. But I, I had this insatiable desire to learn and understand more. And so I began to just devour all kinds of clinical psych, <laughs> everything pertaining to depression, anxiety disorders, trauma, attachment theory, object relations theory. I, I just kept reading and absorbing and listening. And, and I, I still do that to this day. I like to learn. But instinctively, I started developing the practice that I'm describing to you here. Hi, guys. I'm Courtney. And I'm Lisa. And we are the hosts of The Book of the Dead, a true crime podcast based out of New Jersey, where we tell you about the most obscure cases that you may have never heard of. So join us in the Book of the Dead library for another chapter of the Book of the Dead wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, guys. I would get so far doing practice. I would hit a wall at a certain point. When we work with the practice that I just described here, what happens is it starts to activate an innate healing intelligence that resides within our bodies and minds. So I would be doing this practice, and I may tremendous progress, but I still hit a wall with it. So there is this tremendous desire. Like on one hand, there's realizing like, wow, I'm seriously fucked up here. I got to do something. I cannot live like this. This is completely unacceptable. What does it take to heal? And I was determined to do whatever it took. And so I started exploring all these different therapeutic interventions, practices, everything. And did a lot of things. Some of the things that I found very helpful, did a lot of deep tissue body work. And and many of us that enact this kind of trauma, one of the problems that we have is that we're so disconnected from our bodies. So if we do a lot of really deep tissue massage, a lot of this emotion that's trapped in our bodies, it helps to break it loose. When the emotions come loose, well, it could be quite uncomfortable, but the fact that it comes up, it's made accessible, and you could work with the practice I just described, the more you can do that and you process those emotions. I mean, there, there are times where I remember one time in my late 20s, and I had this intense attachment for this woman, and the 
over that weekend, I just kept breathing into all those feelings. And by the end of the weekend, I was like, I was just done. <laughs> and I just, my attachment dissolved. But the fact is, we need to, these emotions need to be made accessible. And doing the deep tissue body work helped with that. See, there are in these, there are these traditions around the world, and we just don't have that here in our mainstream culture. Here we have people who will go through three weekend workshops, and then they call themselves master healers, which is just absolute bullshit because there are traditions of healers around the world. And Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Brazil, among the Native Americans in different parts of Africa. And you'll go through a long, intensive apprenticeship. And there's this transmission of power, but it's usually, it's not given to just whoever shows up at the workshop. It's like it's passed down to maybe one or just a few individuals. And it's like... Yeah, over hundreds, even thousands of years, you have these lineages. And, but I got to work with some very powerful healers anyway, uh, one from Brazil, one from the Philippines. And when I would do these sessions, what I found is I'd be doing as much work as I could on my own to process all these emotions and the pain of these relationships that were disasters at the time. But what I found is that I could feel these holding patterns that were I was trapped in. I could feel them breaking down, and it was freeing me, breaking me out of these holding patterns. But the problem is that these individuals are very few and far between. At 20, I trained from this Native American doctor, a medicine man, and he had transmitted portions of his own healing gifts to me. And I had this period in my 20s, the lost and wandering in the desert phase and just not knowing what to do and just kind of flailing a bit. But when I turned 30 and I was just feeling that powerful pull to go back to the Wichita Mountains, the Vision Quest itself, it's a Native American healing practice that's been done over thousands of years, but it involves you go alone into the mountains to fast, like four days and nights, no food, no water, you're alone in the mountains. You're not drinking rainwater. You're not foraging. You're just like, no food, no water. That's it. And I would die. <laughs> you'd be surprised. There, there is an order of Buddhist monks in Japan. And I think, what was it? I have to look. I forget. I think it's maybe nine days or something. They went nine or 10 days. I have to look again. Um, they pushed it to the limit. They, they, they would go right up to the edge. And after, after that edge, some of them started dropping off, I mean, actually dying or something. But, but you have these traditions throughout the world, and people would develop these extraordinary gifts, spiritual gifts, healing powers, all that. And I've, I've just been connected through a number of these traditions, not that specific tradition. But I've also trained with the master from China. Qingyi Quan, Baguazag, Tai Chi, Qigong. There's a lot of internal Qigong practice and doing that, bringing that Qi or life force into your body. Even that, that's a very important part of building a strong internal foundation. You build this strong inner core, this foundation. And, and it was amazing because if we're enacting a lot of these past traumas in our adult intimate or attempt at intimate relationships, a lot of times we're, again, it's a reenactment of 
early trauma, even if the pattern began to develop later in life, we, we experience these devastatingly painful losses and because we're so disconnected emotionally. And we have, I would say, as a limited processing capacity, a lot of our innate healing intelligence is very much compromised. And so there are times I'd be on the mountain and especially like on the fourth night, and I would feel this extraordinary powerful presence come into my body and I would be reliving traumatic events, some that going way back into my childhood, many of which I'd completely forgotten about, no recollection, but here it is. It's all back. All the vivid memories, sensory impressions, all the emotions attached to it. And I could feel this presence working with me and I would be digesting that trauma. And other times too, it would be more like what I was going through at that time, but it is Again, I've gone dozens of times, so as I kept returning to the mountain, and time after time, I'd feel that presence descending into my body, and I would be reliving these experiences, and I would be digesting them. And so it was in the process, is healing and transforming these, these extraordinarily deep emotional wounds, is building this foundation. And in the course of doing so, it's like gradually, I started forming healthier attachments. But it brought me to a place where I became that much more grounded. I could feel that I had this, like I was rooted on my body. And I had this empathetic feeling sense. I, my sensitivity has developed tremendously. And when I work with people individually, like I'm just standing around people and I'm looking into their body, feeling in their body as I'm standing in their proximity. Sometimes I hold my hand in front of the body and I'm scanning. I feel what's going on emotionally the issues they're struggling with. I feel the whatever they're dealing with, if it's digestive disorders, if they have specific injuries, like uh, injuries in parts of their back or just wherever, heart disease, asthma or some other respiratory disorder, I'm just scanning through my hand. and I just see and I feel all that and are even just standing around people. So as time went on, Instead of getting hooked into that whole projection and reenacting that drama and, and ending up getting re-traumatized by it, it's like, as I would meet and connect with different women and be like, I could see and feel where they were coming from, what, what was going on with them. And, and if they had that capacity to, to be a good friend and companion, and, and instead of being caught up or driven by that pull, by that projection, it was like becoming much, much more relaxed and easy about it. And like meet someone and it's like, wow, you know, I like the connection here. And how does this naturally, organically want to develop? Is this more of a platonic connection? Is there, is there something more here? How do we resonate? Yeah, maybe there is some physical attraction, but yeah, maybe it's really not that compatible, you know? So yeah, despite the fact that there is some physical attraction, we're better off as friends. And so being able to feel and differentiate. So it's also developing this, this capacity for empathy comes along with the sensitivity, developing this emotional intelligence that was lacking before. So is all this making sense, what I'm describing? Oh, of course. Yes, I totally get it. I do. I haven't done the woods, but I get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's very interesting. And I mean, I know 
there are so many different techniques out there. Like one of my best friends, she actually mm-hmm. just did like cupping, which uh-huh. is to help release all of the emotions and everything. So, I mean, there's so much out there nowadays and I don't think people know about half of them. And mm-hmm. it's so important that people do know that there's so many things out there to help you become who you want to be. And we need to combine powerful and the most effective interventions and and to be willing to explore and experiment. What I was doing initially was I would try or test out various practices and interventions. I know a, a lot of times, and I've had people come to me like this, like, like, I'll try out a healing session. And I'm like, are you fucking crazy? Yeah, it's like, try a healing session. And the reason it may sound crude or harsh in some respects, but what I find working with people is that there's so much numbing, so much disconnect. You know, we spend so much of our lives suppressing, avoiding, disconnecting emotionally. We've internalized so much stress from work, all the setbacks and losses and hurts and hardships, everything. So the body holds on to that. Then there's the garbage diet, people are on medications, people smoking cigarettes, getting high, drinking alcohol, on whatever other recreational drugs, on pharmaceuticals, antidepressants, all that. So people's bodies hold enormous amount of stress, emotional residual, all the stuff they haven't processed, trauma, all these things. So what I find is that initially, say the first session is going to be, or the first couple of sessions is like doing, beginning to process or digest that backlog of stress and the emotions, getting into three, four, five bodies becoming more fluid, sessions six, seven, eight on. You know, again, I've being trained by a traditional Native American doctor and medicine man, I work as a conduit. So I have this extraordinarily powerful presence working through me. So there are people who will describe to me, they'll feel sensations of hands within the body doing reconstructions. So I'm working with someone who was injured in an automobile accident and uh, maybe even traumatic brain injury or other people with a digestive disorder like ulcerative colitis and uh, other uh, injuries that people have, you know, resulting again, maybe sports injury or accident, accident that they were in. And they say they could feel a sensation of hands within the body doing actual repair within those areas. But what I find is that a lot of people, their bodies are just so dense and congealed from all this, the stress and all the emotions suppressed all the sensory overload, the fact that we spend so much time online and we're just gorging on Instagram and other social media and, you know, we're just overwhelmed, overloaded. And overstimulated. Yeah, yeah. And the overstimulation creates the overwhelm and overload. It's a big contributing factor. We need to make use of, there's no one intervention that's going to do everything. We need to make use of, as I said, the most effective therapeutic interventions. I spend a good amount of time in 
New York City, maybe not as much time now, but I have. And so in you have Chinatown in Manhattan and Chinatown in uh, Queens, which is actually flushing. And if you go into Chinatown, you could get body work for very affordably. And so I, I have this woman who barely speaks any English, but she's very strong, muscular, and and she just gets in really deep. And I had her do like, what, five sessions or something before I went to the Vision Quest um, about a year or so ago. And so she was doing this very deep, intensive body work. She's also using the cupping at the same time. So I had this bruising going from below my shoulder blades, up between and up over and across my shoulders. This, it was all black and blue. And she took a photo of it and she was like shaking her head and she's like, oh, no good. And I said, wow, it feels wonderful. It's like so much of that, that that's adhesions, all that, it broke down and I was on the mountain and it just felt a lot more comfortable. So I, I love her work. So the cupping is great because there's, on one hand, there's uh, those adhesions that form. There's a lot of emotion trapped there, that stagnant chi. That does facilitate release. I didn't find it as much as far as actually processing those emotions, but it is something, it is a tool, it is a resource that I will, I've done and I will continue to have her do. But, um, but again, the, the combination, I think what I find is that the body work and the cupping, it would break the emotions loose, but we still need to be able to actually do the practice. And one of the things I found is that I've seen people who have suffered enormous trauma, and sometimes they would do body work, and it would trigger them to such an extent because they had so much of the emotion that was dislodged as a result of the body work. But then they didn't have the faculties or the resources to to thoroughly process or digest that overwhelming emotions, those all those impressions, all the highly charged imagery and everything that was coming up. When I work with people, sometimes, you know, again, they, they can be so locked up that I'll say, okay, go and do the body work before you come to see me. Do the body work because that's going to break a lot of stuff loose. It's going to soften your body. It's going to make my work a lot easier. So they'll go do the body work, those session or however many before, then they'll come in, they'll do the session with me. And then as I work with them, being a conduit, that presence comes through. And one of the things that's unique or specific to the work that I facilitate is that that presence working through me will take all that highly charged emotion, those lived experiences, and it literally, it's like, it's being transformed or transmuted so that it's softened, they can digest it, and then it's integrated. It becomes fuel for their growth. They're integrating it, it becomes a functional part of them. But there's also, I've experienced this as well going through Again, the vision quest. When I look into people's bodies, one of the things I notice is that a lot of people lack what I refer to as infrastructure, what they call the chakras and the aura, all that. When I look, I see people who are very much dissociated. 
not that present in their bodies. And there's a lot of the foundation that just hasn't really developed. It's failed to develop. And so when you when you have an opportunity to work with some of these indigenous healers or someone like me who is trained by a Native American doctor, a medicine man, or if you're really hardcore, if you go through the vision quest, there's a whole different level that comes into play. And so this is something that's very unique or very specific to some of these healing practices that I don't find, I haven't observed it or seen it happen anywhere else. And it's not in any way to diminish or discredit or downplay other healing modalities because these different practices, interventions, modalities, I mean, there there are times, for instance, and it pains me because there are people that call me from the other side of the planet or some part of the country that I don't see myself traveling to. And and they're in the mix of, uh, you know, they're strung out on someone or they're going through some kind of abusive hell in a relationship. Like, like I've heard uh, you're just in some of the episodes of your podcast, a few of your guests that talked about the narcissistic abuse and being trapped in situations where you have a child and then you have your person you're married to and you can't just up and leave so easily. But so working with an acupuncturist, for instance, can help to mitigate some of that horrible suffering or wear and tear. And so I always take into account, okay, here's the person, here's where they're located, and here's what resources are available. What can I recommend? If I can work with people individually, especially in person, I can work remotely at a distance, but can do so much more. But there are certain aspects of the emotional wounding and the trauma that I carried that I didn't find anything else really healed that trauma until I actually worked with some of these gifted healers. And when I went on the vision quest, other things helped. They helped to varying degrees, but there was some of that traumatic wounding that just was not healing otherwise. And so I want to be as, I guess, present this in the most balanced way possible. And and I want to say this from a place of compassion, empathy, and and I do everything I possibly can. I it, it pains me to see people suffer. And it's like, okay, what can we do in terms of what is it going to take to facilitate the healing of these wounds? In different parts of the world, in different cultures, in different traditions, you know, for instance, in India, you'd see it among Native Americans and uh, other ancient cultures, but it was commonplace that people would make these pilgrimages to what were referred to as sacred sites. Among Native Americans, people would travel great distances to go to certain areas, maybe to a particular mountain to do the vision quest. In India, they would there were sacred sites where people would go to that had gone to for hundreds or thousands of years. And so even when it comes to working with the gifted healer, when we when we carry these devastating wounds, it's you know, for me, I was suffering so badly. So the the thought, the thinking in my mind was that, okay, what does it take? What do I have to do? And for twice a year, for decades now, 
I've gone to all the expense, have to book the rent a car, the flights, the Airbnb. I bring my ass all the way back down to Oklahoma and the Wichita Mountains, fly, drive, go up there those four days and nights, not eating, not drinking. It's like, hey, I haven't found anything else that enabled me to heal the suffering, the trauma that I carried and facilitated as great a development. And yeah, it's quite expensive, but it's like, again, that, that question, what does it take to truly heal? And I explored a lot of interventions and, and, and I encourage listeners, everyone, I meet or talk to the same thing. What does it take? Explore the practices, the interventions. And as you find out what's working the most powerful, really throw yourself into it, dive into it. And where do you practice at? Where are you for people who would actually want to see you in person? I move around a bit. I was spending a lot of time in New York City and Boston, and I'm still there at times, sometimes upstate New York. I've been in northern Idaho for the past two months here. There are times I'm out in the San Francisco Bay Area, visited New Mexico at times. I used to live there. I'm scheduled to go to the Kansas City area. I'm very homesick for India, Sri Lanka, so I'm waiting for the opportunity to get my ass back over there. <laughs> and and if there are times where people have reached out to me and and made things happen, they said, "Okay, you know, if you come here, I'll do X number of sessions. I'll cover your flight, your Airbnb, and I'll." get my friends lined up too. And I've done that at times. So part of me really misses being in Europe too. I, I love different cultures. And now I feel most at home in India, Sri Lanka, <laughs> despite what I said earlier. <laughs> As I said, every culture has its, its flavor or brand of pathology, but most at home in South Asia. But I'm just fascinated by all different cultures and Sri Lanka was a war zone when I first went there. It, it was when I first landed. There were soldiers behind sandbag barricades with machine guns. I, on one occasion, walked past a bombing minutes after it occurred, and uh, another time I walked past a, a bomb that didn't go off. <laughs> that was, but that was crazy. But then later I was staying in the former war zone and I got to be friends with a number of uh, former rebel combatants, members of the LTTE or Tamil Tigers. And, you know, the narrative was the Sri Lankan government, they, they took over the narrative and spun the narrative and they said, you know, those people are the terrorists. And But after being in Sri Lanka all that time, it was like, Okay, so the Sri Lankan army and military, they were torturing and they were raping and they disappeared thousands and, and they bombed a girl's school and they killed about 60 young school girls. And yet you're calling the Tamil people terrorists? Fuck you, man. You're the ones who are terrorists. As I got to know a lot of the Tamil people, it's come to, came to understand that they were fighting for their survival. And I fully supported their drive for independent homeland after getting to know a lot of these people and, and staying in the former war zone. But yeah, um, I move around. So reach out to me. Now, I'll make sure that I put your website in the show notes. It's 
benufana.com. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my website. If you go to my website, I'm, I work with so many different issues. Being trained by this Native American doctor, having gone through so many vision quests, my range is pretty broad. Uh, traditionally, a lot of the traditional Native doctors were more narrowly specific, but there's very few people working on this level at this time in history. And people would come to me with such a wide range of issues. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And it's like, and I would just jump in. It's like, okay, well, I'll do the best I can here. And the fact that I've gone through the vision quest so many times, because when you keep going, you receive different kinds of gifts of healing that expands your range of motion. But if you go to my website, there's the, where it says contact. So depending on what your what issues or concerns you're dealing with, you could message me through the contact form. There's uh, I give my Google Voice number because Google Voice filters out the spam calls. It's a if I give my regular cell phone, yeah, it would get inundated. But the Google Voice is three three two. Three 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 five one five five. So you can reach out to me that way. For years, I taught classes. People going through breakup and divorce, abandonment, unrequited love. Get them through all the uh, horrendous, heartrending drama, and where they were all strung out like drug addicts on somebody who was ripping their heart out or whatever. And you know, there's also a lot of people I've worked with, and it's enabled them to. As they heal their own emotional wounding, and I've seen a lot of individuals, couples come closer together, and it's deepened, strengthened. It's, I mean, like one friend who's gone through a disastrous divorce, his first relationship marriage, just horrendous. And so when he meets his wife, and she had suffered as a result of being sexually assaulted and was having other emotional wounding trauma, suffered panic attacks and OCD and medicated. And my friend pulls me aside and says, look, I know she's got a lot of, she's going through a lot. She's got some serious issues here, but I cannot afford to go through another disastrous relationship. And I know you have really good judgment, you know, insight into people. So I want you to be honest with me. Can she heal or is, she, is the damage so severe that I'm better off just cutting it off and going my own way. And panic attacks, the OCD healed, and she no longer had the obsessive fear of swallowing her tongue and choking to death. OCD can be can do strange things, of course. But and they've been married, I think, 20 years now, and they have a son, like I think 16 now or something. But and like all couples, they've gone through their challenges. But I, I see a lot of couples, and I've seen other individuals who have suffered tremendously abusive relationships, whatever kinds of disasters. And I've seen a lot of individuals over the years let go of unhealthy attachments and connect with someone with whom they could bond and form a truly deep and meaningful loving connection. But there's a, a specific link for that, which is refiningrelationships.com, and that's relationships, plural, so refiningrelationships.com. There is a free ebook if someone wants to download, and that's just gettingoveryourbreakup.com. So that's available. 
And however I could be of assistance, I want to do everything I can. Uh, it's, the work is much more powerful in person. I can work over the phone. If, if, it's, if there's something that I don't feel I could be of assistance, I'm going to tell you straight out if, if that were, were the case. And because I really want people to get the help they need. And I have a lot of knowledge about specific kinds of conditions or issues. And, and so if there are other resources that I feel will be of benefit to you, I'll refer that. I'll refer you to those resources if I know other practitioners or whatever. And again, if I could be of assistance to you, I'll let you know that as well. Did I cover everything? You did. That's perfect. Are there any questions you have? Because I've been no, you literally, yep, you nailed them all. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's very informative, very informative. So I think anyone who is going through something will be like, "Oh my gosh, I can identify with that," which is something we need. We all need to realize that we're not alone. True. I also feel it's important too. That we do what we can, you know, we all have our own individual suffering, and that in whatever way we can make a difference in the world. You know, there's so many animals in shelters, dogs, cats, and if you have space in your home, a dog or cat is extraordinarily loving, loyal friend. And just having that connection, if you're lonely, if you're suffering, and do be responsible if you take a a dog or cat in because sometimes people abandon them after, you know, short attention span, all that. And, and other things, if you could help to mentor a child, if it's caring for elderly people, I'm, you know, having been in Sri Lanka during its wartime and witnessing that suffering, it concerns me a lot to see the suffering that's happening in Ukraine. So even things like within the past couple of days, I've called my elected officials here in the state of Idaho. And it's like, you know, please allocate aid you know, for Ukraine so they can have the armaments they need to defend themselves. And, you know, even just taking these steps, you know, so have tremendous concern about what's happening. Yeah, I think everybody needs some help right about now. <laughs> All of us, yeah. the whole world, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But... I do need to get finishing up. I want to thank you so much for being on. This was great. And I think this is going to help a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, Very much enjoyed our conversation. Yes. uh, Yeah. And yeah, let's stay in touch. I very much enjoy talking with you. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. All right, and that is going to wrap up this episode. Seriously, you guys, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me. I think we can all agree that we probably have that one friend that really needs to hear this message. So make sure that you share it with them. If you want to get more of me, hey, make sure that you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. You can also find me on Instagram, TikTok, and I want to know, has one of my episodes made an impact on you in any way? Like for real, I really want to know. So if so, go to my website, truecrimeconnections.com, or you can email me podcast at truecrimeconnections.com. I want to talk to you guys. Come talk to me. Let's do the damn thing.
(laughs) Keep finding hope and building strength. Until next time. Thank you.